All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, very short little letter. And in this session, we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And we need to say right up front, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Paul's letters. When Peter writes in 2 Peter that some of the things that our beloved brother Paul wrote are confusing, this is one of them. This passage is confusing. Now, to be fair, I don't think it was nearly as confusing to the original audience as it is to us. And the reason I say that is because Paul makes very clear in this passage that he is reminding them of things that he taught them in detail while he was with them, which means we're left a little bit in the dark. He's jogging their memory, and we have nothing in our memory to be jogged, right? And so uh, for us, this is a very confusing passage, but I don't think it was for the original audience. So all of that means that as we walk down through 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, you're going to have to really pay attention to the details. You're going to have to put a little bit of your thinking cap on, and you're going to have to also maybe be uh, a little humble as to what we can actually totally figure out and sort out, since there's details here that they knew that we don't know and that we're missing. So here's the way I want to approach things. I want to give you kind of an introduction and overview of the text. And then I want to walk down through the text, looking at the details to see if we can't sort out at least some of those details to figure out what Paul seems to be getting at. So the question that initiates this discussion really is the timing of Jesus' return. If you recall in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul had a whole paragraph about what he calls times and season. And he says, it's not for you to know that. It's going to come like a thief in the night. And so we don't know exactly when that will be. Well, apparently when 1 Thessalonians was read out loud to the church in Thessalonica and they heard that passage, it actually provoked more confusion than help. And the reason it seems to provoke more confusion from what we can tell, trying to read between the lines, is that they had received some sort of word or message that Paul said the day of the Lord had already come. And Paul's not sure exactly what kind of message they heard. We'll see that here in the passage. He refers to a prophecy, a letter, some sort of thing like that. And so, but they had gotten some message that uh, claimed to be from Paul that the day of the Lord had happened. Then all of a sudden they get this letter uh, from Paul's authorized uh, representative. And in the letter, Paul tells him, look, you don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to come like a thief in the night. And I imagine the early church there in Thessalonica looking around, there's quizzical looks on their face. Finally, some lone hand brave enough raises up and says, uh, I thought Paul already said it had happened. And so Paul here in Second Thessalonians uh, when he sends this letter, one of the main reasons is to address this issue and to bring greater clarity as to when the day of the Lord will happen. And in short, the answer Paul gives here in 2 Thessalonians 2 is that the day of the Lord couldn't have happened yet because the man of lawlessness has not been revealed yet. That's really at a boiled down version. That's the main point of this paragraph. The problem is, is all the details, and who is this man of lawlessness, and what in the world is Paul talking about? That's where things kind of go off the rails a bit, and we get a little confused. But that's the basic point. 
the day of the Lord could not have happened yet because the man of lawlessness has not been revealed yet. And Paul is helping them realize that whatever supposed message they heard, it was telling them a falsehood because of this simple fact that he had explained to them when he was actually teaching and preaching to them in person. And so the interpretive challenge for us becomes, who is this man of lawlessness? And at the outset, we need to note that there have been, because of the confusion of this text, there have been a number of different interpretations, specifically interpretations of who or what this passage is referring to. Now, at the present time, probably the most popular idea is that this passage refers to some sort of end times antichrist figure that uh, has great power and perpetuates great blasphemy. That's probably the most popular view today, as general as that is. Um, But throughout church history, and particularly in modern times, there have been a variety of ways of looking at this text. Some have seen it as some sort of political ruler, which is often the way it's taken today. Some have seen it as some sort of great religious ruler. Some seen it, have seen it as a body of people. Some have seen it even as referring to the not a specific pope, but the papacy in total, the whole history of all the popes together. Uh, there have been specific Roman emperors. There have been great rulers pointed to in history. So uh, there's just been a load of different kinds of people or groups of people that some have said this text is referring to. And that should be a tip-off that maybe there's a different way to read it. All right, but before I get ahead of myself, we should probably jump in and just start working through the details of the text. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 reads like this. Now, we ask you, brothers and sisters, regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. This is echoes of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So he's using that same language and same imagery that he had there describing the the second coming. And so regarding that event, he says that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so that's why we say in some form or fashion, presumably Paul doesn't know exactly, the original audience, the Thessalonians, had gotten uh, some message Maybe a letter, spirit refers to like maybe a prophetic utterance from somebody or something. They had gotten some word claiming to be from Paul, as if from us, that was claiming that the day of the Lord had come. The day of the Lord was the phrase that Paul used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to describe the second coming. It's an Old Testament phrase that refers to the day of judgment for those apart from God and salvation for those who have faith in God. And Paul explained there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we don't know when that's going to happen. It's going to be like a thief in the night. But for those of us who are in Christ, we at least know that it's going to happen, even if we don't know when, so we can be ready. Well, they apparently have gotten some sort of message that uh, to the effect that the day of the Lord had already happened, that it had already come. And so when Paul wrote to them what he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, it just created all sorts of confusion. And so now Paul needs to clarify, wait, hold on, let's take a step back. Apparently we got to sort some things out. 
And so, once again, the topic being addressed here in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the same as that topic addressed in 1 Thessalonians 5, and that is the day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus, and specifically the timing of the coming of Jesus. And he says at the outset of verse 3 that no one is to deceive you in any way about this. Don't let anyone deceive you. And then what he's going to do in the rest of verse 3 and down through verse 4 is give a simple statement by way of explanation as to why the day of the Lord could not have happened yet. This is what he writes. He says, for, explanatory, right? So he's explaining. It couldn't have happened yet. Don't let anyone deceive you. Why not? Well, for, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And so the reason that the day of the Lord could not have happened yet is because the apostasy hasn't come and the man of lawlessness hasn't been revealed. So one of the first questions we're confronted with is this idea of the apostasy. What is he referring to by the apostasy? And scholars are somewhat divided on that. The word simply refers to kind of like the rebellion or the falling away in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. This word, apostasia, is regularly used for the sinful rebellion against God, God's truth, and God's ways, particularly among his people, that they fell away from God. They weren't faithful to him. And that is probably the the accurate sense here in this passage, particularly in view of where the passage ends up in verses 10 and 11. And if that's the case, when we look at verses 10 and 11, we realize that Paul believes that's already happening in his day and will continue to happen throughout time until the coming of Jesus, that people will be rejecting the truth of God and going their own way, just as they were in Paul's day, right up until the final day. In fact, we could even probably be more specific, since this word was used in the Greek Old Testament for the falling away of Jews from God, and in the intertestamental literature, the literature between Malachi and Matthew during that Jewish period, it referred to a period of great rebellion of Jews against God and God's ways, it may very well be that Paul has primarily that kind of apostasy in mind. And that would be appropriate in view of what what happened in Thessalonica. It was the Jews who stirred up trouble for Paul. It was the Jews who forced him out of town. It was the Jews who seemed to be uh, giving the, the Christians there a hard time. And so their experience of Jewish rebellion against the gospel is a necessary prelude to the coming of the Messiah, would seem to be the point. And because that's still going on, certainly the day of the Lord couldn't have come yet. That seems to be the force of what Paul is saying here. So the apostasy has to happen, uh, has to come, right? And, And it is present in Paul's day and continuing even to our day. And then the man of lawlessness has to be revealed. Now, we need to think clearly about a couple of things. The phrase man of lawlessness doesn't necessarily refer to a human being or even a male person. In fact, it's parallel here in this verse by son of destruction. These are Hebrew ways of speaking 
uh, about a category of persons, a, a category that describes more about that person. So this, this one, the man of lawlessness, the real focus is there on lawlessness. This person is a rebel. He goes against God's law is the idea. And so his character is lawless and his fate is destruction. He's the son of destruction. He's destined for destruction. And so um, this man of lawlessness is a, a presumably some person or being that is a rebel against God's law and is doomed for destruction. And it says here that he needs to be revealed. That's a really important word that we don't want to misread. In fact, as we go through this text, Paul seems to be very, very specific with this word. Revealed doesn't mean come into existence. Revealed doesn't mean um, even become active. What revealed means in this passage is to be disclosed, for the curtain to be pulled back and it be obvious who the man of lawlessness is. That seems to be the force of what Paul is getting at here, is that the man of lawlessness is going to be seen and known for who he is. The curtain will be pulled back on the man of lawlessness. This word revealed, apocalypto uh, in the Greek, is the idea of being disclosed, being unveiled, right? Like, being seen, right? Not becoming alive or not becoming active, but being unveiled. That's what's going to happen to the man of lawlessness. So the the day of the Lord couldn't have come because the man of lawlessness hasn't been unveiled yet. He hasn't been disclosed for who he really is yet. So that's the force of what Paul is saying. The, the day of the Lord couldn't have happened yet because the apostasy is still going on and the man of lawlessness is still hidden. He's still behind the scenes. It's still not obvious who he is. Then he further describes the man of lawlessness as like the ultimate blasphemer. He's, he's described in verse 4 as the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. In other words, the man of lawlessness presents himself as God. He assumes the right to be worshipped upon himself. In fact, the text goes on and says that he even takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And so the man of lawlessness is somebody who exalts himself to the place of being God himself and demanding the worship of God. Now, a couple things that we need to sort out here. If you're reading the NIV, uh, instead of just saying that the man of lawlessness is the one who opposes and exalts himself, they actually infer a future perspective, which only creates confusion and limits our interpretive options. So if you're reading the NIV, they will say that, uh, that the man of lawlessness will uh, oppose and will exalt. But the text doesn't say that. In fact, in, in the original grammar, it's just a participle describing him. It's just descriptive of his character, descriptive of what's wrong with this person, descriptive of his problems. And the problem is, is that this guy wants everyone to believe he's God. He wants to assume the prerogative of God, and he wants everyone to worship him as God. That's the problem. We don't know when that's going to happen, whether present or future. That's not clear in the text. It's purely descriptive of his character. The other thing we need to note about the man of lawlessness here is that he takes his seat in the temple of God. 
hmm, what do we mean by the temple of God? Well, there's two different words for temple in Greek. Yeron, which refers to the entire temple complex in Jerusalem, or neos, which referred most specifically to the temple proper, especially the sanctuary, um, where God himself was present and where God himself was worshipped. And that's the word we have here. He takes his seat in the neos of God, the very sanctuary of God, the, the place where God's presence alone is supposed to be. And he's trying to display himself as being God. He wants everyone to see him as God. That's the idea. And so are we thinking about the temple literally and physically in Jerusalem? That's, the, that's an interpretive question that scholars have really wrestled with. For example, part of the reason why some scholars have said, oh, this refers to the papacy, particularly in view of like the Protestant Reformation and some of that, right? You, you, you'll find um, even like Martin Luther and some of these guys taking that sort of view. Well, because the word temple is applied to the church in the New Testament. So this word temple has, in some senses, already in the New Testament, a metaphorical use, a use beyond a literal physical temple in Jerusalem. The church, in other words, is now the sanctuary of God where he dwells among mankind. So what does this word temple actually refer to? Uh, personally, I don't think we should take it as referring to the church, even though Paul often uses it that way. Um, should we take it then to refer to the Jerusalem temple? Possibly. But if so, I, I think the better way to read this is what... What Paul is doing is he is using the imagery of the Jerusalem temple and what some pagan rulers had done in the Jerusalem temple to envision the ultimate character of the man of lawlessness. Um, that he is the kind of being, he is the kind of person who believes he's God and demands everyone should worship him as God. And so, personally, I don't think we should take the language here literally as referring to the Temple of Jerusalem, except in the metaphorical sense, as pointing towards the ultimate point Paul is trying to make from the text, and that is that the man of lawlessness displays himself as God and demands the worship that's only due to God. This was the view of a well-known uh, Bible commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, and he put it like this. He said, it may be best to conclude that the Jerusalem sanctuary is meant here by Paul and his companions, but meant in a metaphorical sense. Had they said, so that he takes his seat on the throne of God, few would have thought it necessary to think of a literal throne. It would have simply been regarded as a graphic way of saying that he plans to usurp the authority of God. This is what is meant by the language actually used here, although the sacred associations of Naos temple imply that he demands not only the obedience, but also the worship that is due to God alone. And I think that's probably the best way to understand this, that the language here is simply trying to describe the character of this one as somebody who demands both the obedience that's due to God and the worship that is due to God alone. So at this point in his explanation, Paul has offered really his basic point that the day of the Lord couldn't have come yet because the apostasy is still present and the man of lawlessness has not been revealed. He's not been unveiled and seen for who he is. And so 
he says in verse 5, don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. And so presumably, as part of his initial teaching and preaching to the Thessalonian believers, he was actually explaining stuff about the man of lawlessness that he's now bringing up here in the letter. And so he says, don't you remember that while I was there in person, I was telling you these things. And our response to that is, no, we don't remember, right? The Thessalonians did. Paul's jogging their memory. He's reminding them of things he already taught them. But we don't have the luxury of knowing what he taught them. We weren't there. And that's the reason for us this passage is maybe so ambiguous and so unclear. It's like, Paul, could we just sit down with you and have you teach us the things that you're reminding them of? Could you fill in the gaps for us? That would sure be helpful. Uh, but we don't have the luxury of that. And so we're working with sort of a skeleton outline and trying to figure out what exactly it is Paul was communicating to the Thessalonians that they were already somewhat aware of and understood. And one of the things that reminds us is that we're not the original audience. That although the Bible is God's word for us, it wasn't originally written to us. And that means there's things we're going to struggle to understand. That means it's going to address issues and questions that we weren't asking, but they were. We might have different questions, and our questions aren't always directly answered. And so when we come to the text, we must come with open minds, open hands, and open hearts. We must kind of humble ourselves before the text and trust that God knows best. And if this is the way he thought it was best to reveal himself and his word to us, then we need to just listen as best as we can acknowledge what we don't understand, and be humble in our approach to the text. And so as we work through this very difficult task, that's the posture we need to come. Not arrogance, not assuming we've got it all figured out, humble, recognizing that, man, this is a difficult text, and we don't know all the details that Paul is assuming the readers of the letter know. All right, so let's leave it here for now. We'll pick up in our next session with the other half of this discussion. And Paul goes into some details in the second half that are really perplexing. But if we can grasp those, it'll at least maybe help us make a little more sense of what Paul is getting at. So check out part two of 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12.